Hello, my name's David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. Today, we're going to talk about the politics of mental health and we're also going to talk about the mental health of politics. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, the magazine that publishes its political analysis in between essays on art and history, philosophy and technology, Princess Margaret or the Garden of Eden. Visit lrb.co.uk forward slash talking for a reading list of similarly eclectic pieces to accompany today's episode and a special subscription offer for Talking Politics listeners. Six months of the LRB for just £1 an issue. I've got Helen Thompson with me and Chris Brooke. I should probably start by saying none of us is claiming to be an expert on mental health. What we are interested in is the politics of it, because mental health has become a much, much more visible political issue in the last few years. And one of the things it would be good to talk about is why we think that's happened and what we think is driving it. But there's another trigger for this discussion too, which is the imminent publication of a book called The Inner Level. It's the follow-up to a really important book by the same authors called The Spirit Level, which was published in 2009, which, along with Thomas Piketty's Capital in the 21st Century, made inequality an absolutely central issue of politics. And the argument of The Spirit Level, to summarise it very briefly, was that inequality is bad for everyone. A mass of data could be produced to show that well-being, health, quality of life suffers in increasingly unequal societies across the board. So it's not just the people at the bottom. To be almost anywhere on a hierarchy which is geared around status and is increasingly strung out, strings people out. The inner level builds on that, but it's a little bit different. I think there are two differences to it. The first is that in the spirit level this was health in the round and it included infant mortality rates, overall mortality rates, heart disease, the ways in which human beings can suffer. This one is much more about mental health. So the subtitle is how more equal societies reduce stress, restore sanity and improve everyone's well-being. So if nothing else, this book is a reflection of the way in which mental health has become a central issue in its own right. I think the other difference is that the new book puts more emphasis on how much people who are lower down the scale suffer relative to people higher up the scale. It has a stronger line of argument about the disadvantages of being increasingly disadvantaged relative to the medium well-off and the very well-off. And that also, I think, is a really important theme for contemporary politics. And this is the question I'm going to start with and start by asking Helen and Chris. On one level, mental health could be seen to be a kind of unifying theme that would be closer to the argument of the first book, that we all suffer and we all are suffering stress. We've talked a bit about this on this podcast and we've touched on these issues to live in a digital society, the attention economy, the ways in which we are all really under pressure. Professionals, high earners, low earners, students, old people. The alternative point of view is that what makes mental health a really acute political issue is that it exacerbates social divides because to be disadvantaged, to be poor, to belong to a minority, LGBT, BME minorities, that's to bear the brunt of this crisis, partly because you can't access the services, but also because you are genuinely disadvantaged across the board. If we start with that question, Chris, do you think 
if you look at mental health as an issue, and in a moment we'll talk about why we think it's risen up the political agenda, do you think of it as a, a unifying issue or a dividing issue? Like so much in politics, a lot turns on the calculations people make about electoral politics. We want to live in a world where decisions about treatment and so on are made by medical professionals who are able to respond to needs, and so it's entirely proper that resources will be directed to areas of greatest need. From the perspective of the politicians, it's going to be a matter of where they're fishing for votes and how they think they can use the mental health crisis to get people to support them. So I wouldn't want to lose sight of that. Okay, well, let me frame it then in that more slightly blunt electoral calculus way. I associate this issue with two politicians in particular. I may be wrong about this, but the person for me who put it on the map was Nick Clegg. I was struck in the 2010 election how the Liberal Democrats made mental health a really central part of their platform. And it was that argument that it had been neglected relative to other kinds of health and that there was a crisis and we needed to face up to the fact it was just as important as the other measures of physical health. But I think of him, maybe because it's a Lib Dem way of approaching some of these things, as seeing it as a unifying issue, that it cut across class divides, generational divides. And if you look at the rhetoric that the Liberal Democrats have used about this issue, it touches base with the stresses of professionals, the stresses of the unemployed, the stresses of the young, the difficulties of people with old age-related mental health issues and so on. It's very ecumenical. The other politician I associate with is Jeremy Corbyn, who really has made it a very, very important part of his platform, not least in Prime Minister's questions. He's probably asked more questions about mental health, I'd have thought, than any other politician ever. But I think for Corbyn it is more, and is this electoral calculus? Is this political ideology? Is it a bit of both? It is more about disadvantage. And again, if you look at the last Labour manifesto, it was very, very different from the other two in that, it, like the other two, it said mental health is a really important issue. But it's an important issue for certain groups. And the groups were LGBT, BME, and the young. And that's the constituency. I still want to make the case that electoral politics does most of the work. That's to say that the Liberal Democrats have a problem putting together targeted or precise political messages when they campaign nationally because they're competitive in only a minority of seats, but those seats often have very different electoral profiles, electoral geographies, electoral demographics. And so what that means is the Liberal Democrats want to have general national campaigning messages that can then be turned into much more focused, precise, sometimes conflicting local messages local parties have to have a lot more autonomy to tailor the campaign to the locality than is the case with the Labour Party, where the party has a strong sense of which groups it wants to get turning out for it in the great majority of constituencies in the country, certainly the half or more than half of the constituencies in the country that they want to win. So I do think that electoral politics is doing a lot of the work here in explaining what you've just described. Having said that, when you think about the kind of people who go into the politics of different parties and how the feedback effects of repeatedly fighting elections and so on and so on, yeah, sure, they believe it. It's not just cynicism. This is how Liberal Democrats think. This is how Labour Party politicians think. So in the end, it becomes difficult to separate things out. But you're right that there are these differences in the approach of the what are now the two opposition parties, and it's got a lot to do with where they think they might be getting votes. 
This is a hard question, not for the first time on this podcast, but as much from observation as from anything else. I think the actual issue of mental health is probably doing some of the work too, in the sense that it is both something that is divisive and it is something that's unifying. And I think if you look at the predicaments that the most disadvantaged face, they end up spending a lot of their lives dealing with very stressful situations. So if you like to use that phrase that I'm usually not keen on but will do for these purposes, bandwidth gets taken up worrying about money, worrying about physical health. And these are all the things where human beings generally can often be not very good at decision-making and make people very stressed. So I think there probably is a structural reason why disadvantaged people are more likely in some sense to have mental health issues, everything else being equal. But of course everything else isn't equal and we all know that everybody is actually capable of having episodes of mental health problems and I think where I've seen this obviously most closely is is the changes in what happens to students. What is very striking is that many more students than used to be the case openly have mental health issues. Now I'm not saying for a moment that that means necessarily that there has been a substantive increase. It's possible that more people are open about it. I actually think there has been a genuine increase and what's striking there is is that the kinds of people when I first came to Cambridge in the middle of the 90s who had the kinds of students who had mental health difficulties belonged in certain kinds of categories and now you see it much more across the range of students that we see in Cambridge so it's much less easy to predict say when you meet students to begin with who might be the ones who are vulnerable on mental health so in that sense you say look there's a divide there's a problem between the experience of older generations and the experience of this particular young generation. But at the same time, if you look at the demographics of the students themselves, it's much more unifying experience than it used to be. I want to come back to the age divide in a second because it touches on some of the other questions about health that we've talked about. But just to connect it back to the inequality question, which is where Wilkinson and Pickett come in, and that slight difference between the emphasis, or maybe it's a bigger difference actually, between the emphasis of the two books... Another way you could put it is that I think in the spirit level, one of the reasons it was a really important book is it chimed with the kind of 99% framing of politics, which is in unequal societies, almost everyone suffers because as hierarchy gets strung out, as wealth gets strung out, everyone is somewhere on the scale where they're feeling under pressure in various ways. And they do make a lot about status. They make a lot about... We live in an increasingly comparative world where people are comparing themselves to each other and social media and other things have a lot to do with that. The argument of the earlier book would be it does matter where you are on this gradient and the lower down you are, the more you are going to bear the brunt of it. But even relatively high up as a professional, as someone in a reasonably well-paid job, you still feel the effects of inequality. You see the people moving far ahead of you. You see these big differentials in the experiences of people quite close to you. That's the kind of 99%, 1% version Whereas the later version feels more like it chimes with the contemporary mood of politics, which is we're increasingly kind of 50-50 societies, the educated, the less well-educated, the old, the young, the well-off, the less well-off. And it's one half who are really bearing the brunt here. Chris, do you think, is that right, that actually the politics of inequality, never mind the politics of mental health, is going through that kind of shift too? We don't hear so much about the 99% anymore. We, We hear much more about the big social and political divisions of the post-Brexit world. I think that's right. But what I'm struck by is that this isn't a new story. This is a very old story. 
I spend my academic life teaching the political ideas of modern political philosophers like Thomas Hobbes, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, Immanuel Kant, and so on. And this is the central theme in their psychology, that Thomas Hobbes, in his famous story about the state of nature in which everything is solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short, he thinks that people are competitive and they want to get one over on other people and they want to feel superior to other people. And what that leads to is a world in which people deeply care about what other people think about them. And Hobbes wasn't so concerned with whether people were happy or not in that sense in which we would talk about mental health. But his 18th century successor, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, absolutely was. And Rousseau's argument was that inequality makes everyone unhappy because it makes people bitter and envious and resentful and they're endlessly comparing themselves with one another and this does not do good things for their mental equipoise and for their general contentment. And so just to be clear, everyone unhappy. So it doesn't just make the poor unhappy, it makes the rich unhappy too. Pretty much. But Rousseau also then made the connection to the 50-50 issue you're talking about, which is that he thought it was these psychodynamics of an unequal society that produced what in the 19th century would be called the class struggle. That this 18th century theory has a very well-worked-out story about why... The story of the class struggle is not simply a material struggle over scarce resources. It's deeply bound up with the psychodynamics of inequality, and it's a psychological story as much as it's a material one. That's all there in the 18th century. In the 19th century, Marxists and a lot of modern socialists shifted the discussion over much more onto bread-and-butter issues, issues of the material standard of living, rather than questions of psychology. And these days, the hegemony of economics gives us a story in which we're always supposed to want more, but having more makes us happy. It's always rational to want more, because with more you can do more things, you can satisfy more needs. Long before this account of rationality became dominant, the The people in the earlier political economy tradition, someone like Bernard Mandeville, for example, knew full well that, and including, in fact, Adam Smith, the author of The Wealth of Nations, knew full well that when you get more, you don't become happier because you just become resentful that there are still people above you in the hierarchy. Everyone knew this in the 18th century, and the 19th and the 20th century have been this long process of forgetting or covering up something that used to be very familiar. So in a way, that then touches on one of the other basic questions here, which is, unless I missed it, mental health as a political issue is a relatively recent thing. I don't remember it in the Blair years, for instance. I'm sure it was there in the background. I think of it as partly post-2008. It was an issue in the coalition government, and this goes back from the big themes of the philosophers to the nuts and bolts of political calculation and it was one of the things that the Lib Dems brought to that coalition but Helen do you have a sense of what it was leaving aside that fascinating long story what it was that brought it up the political agenda over the last 10 years as you say something of it almost certainly is to do with how we live and the stresses that we're under there is a kind of recognition factor here. I think we're probably all more aware than we used to be. And we probably experience it more either in our own lives or people that we know how salient this issue is. But is it also to do with post-2008 politics, do you think? The, the honest answer is that I don't know. The only thing I would say is that if you look across the board, then after 2008, a lot of things that had been, if you like, closed in politics opened up. It's not just here where we can say there's a difference between the post-2008 world and what came before. 
I think the one thing that is perhaps context in terms of certainly the argument that you were making earlier is that before 2008, I think there was a pretty general acceptance, at least in British politics, that the criteria of value in politics were materialist in the sense of more economic growth, just generally being more economically um, successful. I mean, what was the promise, if you like, of new labour really, it was to say that we can run the economy more competently than the Conservatives have done and we can make it a bit fairer, but give up on any grander ideas than that. And I think that what we've seen after 2008 is a, a greater willingness to contest that materialist premise of politics. And I think in lots of ways, the 99% versus the 1% was part of that. I think in some ways you might locate an explanation of at least part of the rise of Corbynism in that, in saying it's simply not good enough to say that actually New Labour was economically quite good. That's obviously open to question, but the narrative within New Labour itself. So once you start asking questions about saying, well, what are the consequences of having the kind of economy that we have and the hierarchies that it generates and the competition fundamentally that it generates... What are the consequences of having growing numbers of people in precarious employment, not just in economic terms, but in terms beyond that, including in ethical terms? And you've you've completely opened up politics. And so then there is a space for discussing what might be the unpalatable consequences of an acquisition society. It's true that this doesn't just apply to the two opposition parties. I looked at the Conservative Manifesto, the Nick Timothy Manifesto, the worst manifesto in history, but leave that to one side for the last... Election And it also has almost now the obligatory section in the health bit. A lot of it is about mental health. And it does bring out the differences between the parties. So the, the focus in the Tory one was very much on the workplace. It used words like incentivization, like we need to get the incentive structures right to tackle mental health. So this does also divide the parties quite clearly, actually, that this broad ecumenical issue brings out just how different they are in the way they think about the politics of well-being. It's difficult to disconnect the mental health crisis from the politics of austerity. And that's a matter of political choices made by Tory High Command, not specifically by Nick Timothy. He wasn't in charge then. George Osborne is the key actor here, with Nick Clegg and his party assisting. But the politics of austerity were about a deliberate choice to shift a substantial chunk of the costs of the financial crisis onto a younger generation. If you look at the difference in immediate, medium-term, life and long-term life chances for, you know, let's imagine students graduating from this university in 2005 versus students graduating from this university in 2015. There's been an enormous shift, both in terms of the debt levels, in the number of jobs on offer, in the availability of affordable housing, and so on. And Together with that, the austerity programme has meant severe cuts to all kinds of services, both local government and central government, that once upon a time played some kind of role or other in keeping people going in difficult circumstances. So it's, yes, the Conservatives have found a language for talking about mental health in their manifesto, and it's sort of darkly comic. It's about rejigging the incentives of the workplace, because a great deal of the politics of austerity is about what I think the cultural critic Mark Fisher called the privatisation of stress, of trying to load the costs of of the crisis onto people in their 
private lives. Well, what we're now seeing is a kind of socialization of the privatization of stress, that if too many people are stressed for too long, then that inevitably places great strain on services like the National Health Service and the various mental health services that are offered by public authorities up and down the country. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. To go back to the question of the generational divide, it is very, very clear, again, if you just look at what the politicians say, that in discussing this issue, conservatives still don't want to get away from the fact that they think health is primarily an issue for the old. And we talked about this with James Meek and the ways in which the NHS has become, in some people's minds, a service for old people, and that the resources, particularly under a conservative government, do get directed that way. And Raising mental health up the political agenda is one way of trying to reclaim those resources for the young, because almost by definition, the young aren't going to experience many of the health issues that the old experience. But mental health is one where they possibly experience more of it. And then you do need to then separate out things like dementia, which is a big issue at some places in our political life, from this question, which is a very different question, which is about the pressure that's put on people who are living precarious lives. And that then becomes a young person's politics. And that's part of what Labour is doing here, no question. I mean, mental health for Labour is partly a way of reclaiming the NHS for the young. It may be in Labour's thinking. I think, though, that under the premise of, if that is what Labour is doing, and in some sense the premise of your question forces us into a, a binary politics that I'm not actually convinced by, not just in relation to the generational issue, but the generational issue is the one that's easiest to explain because it often becomes baby boomers versus millennials, entirely forgetting about the generation which we all happen to be, which is Generation X. So it's actually, if you look at the ones who are in adulthood in the moment, it's a mixture of silent generation, baby boomers, Generation X and m- millennials. But if we just take the position of Generation X... If you end up in a situation where you say, OK, we choose between social care and mental health, what you will end up doing is, is putting an enormous amount of stress on Generation X, who are simultaneously dealing with millennial children and baby boomer parents who need social care. So the idea, I think, that you can simply say, we're going to have more of mental health expenditure to help the young and we're going to have less of social care expenditure to um, help the old because the generational balance is, is wrong, entirely, in my view, misses the simple fact that there's more than two generations at stake here and the consequences of what dealing with social care, the pressure that that puts on people, which is a big strain on mental health in itself. Okay, but it is still the case that our politics is now binary because it's a two-party politics. That's one of its features now, that the the third bit is missing, the Lib Dems are missing. And part of this might be about saying to the generation in the middle, can we pull you one way or can we pull you the other? I think it's a a big part of this, and we saw it at the last election, that that extraordinary fact that the age at which people were likely to vote Labour went way up. I, I am right there 
on up the pivot. That's yeah. to say, I am 45. And I, I thought was, it was 47. I, think I was, was 40. 44 at the last election, and the yeah. voting demographics show You thought Chris was 47. No, 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 no. The, 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 the pivot point is 47. The pivot point well, is... Well, the, the, yeah. the, 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 the people who do the polling yeah. collect in sort of 25 to 34, 35 to yeah. 44, and it's... But it's, it was a big move, right. wasn't yeah. it? It was it's, a dramatic yeah. move. It's voted that not that many people in the 18 to 24 bracket voted still fewer people who are properly young vote in general elections compared to other cohorts. But the big swings to Labour were among the, um, and people voting in substantial numbers, were the 25 to 44-year-olds. Then as you get older than that, people start voting Conservative in much, much larger numbers. And one of the explanations Um, for that was thought to be education, that education was an issue where parents with young children were seeing some of the consequences of the politics of the last 10 years. But I'm sure this mental health political argument is a big part of that too seeing the stresses on children and that generation in the middle as Helen says sees it both ways but kind of I'm putting this too crudely but kind of if it's a choice between associating with dementia and associating with the pressure of leaving school going to university acquiring debt and so on there is possibly a closer relationship going down than going up. I mean, this was what James Meek was talking about, and I thought it was a really powerful argument. But, but that presumes that they're passive in themselves and they don't have their own their own mental health potential. Well, that's the other thing, which is, insofar as this is an issue that connects across the generations, it's more likely to connect on the stress front than it is on the dementia front. But one of the other things that I think is quite interesting is that... There's a story about what people suffer on their own and what they do with other people. I came across a story from an academic I know at another institution during the recent strike who said that over the last five or six years he's been suffering from depression and taking pills, but he found that he was in a much better mood during the strike and actually forgot to take his meds. And he was linking that to the experience of doing things together with other people, even if as I mean, striking is quite a stressful activity for people who go through it. But he clearly felt some version of that liberation, that sense of empowerment in doing something that he wanted to do with other people and reflecting that for much of his life, as he made his way up the academic hierarchy, he wasn't doing that. He was responding to incentives. He was behaving in the way his managers wanted him to. And he ended up on pills. So there's not only in politics the issue of people who are observing themselves and those around them and their friends and their families going through difficulties and reflecting on what that may mean for the funding of various services. I think if we're thinking about a phenomenon like Corbynism, it's also a story about that sense that people, and I think this really is a story about younger people, have that they can be part of a collective movement where they think they might actually be able to change things. Now, we don't know whether they're right about that or not yet. I'm sure the Corbyn movement will change British politics over the long run. Whether it issues in a Labour government led by Jeremy Corbyn is another question altogether. But I do think that participation in collective action and that feeling of being part of a movement is an important aspect of this story even if it's one that will only affect a minority of people, because although hundreds of thousands of people are flooded into the Labour Party, that's still a minority of the relevant age cohorts. Can I pick up on one more thing that um, comes out of the, the inner level, the Wilkinson and Pickett book, which is at the end they talk about possible solutions to this crisis of stress and well-being and the need to tackle inequalities at the background of it. But one of the things they say is we need a complete overthink of what we mean by a working week. I mean, it's, again, it's an argument Chris will tell us that goes back a long, long way. The idea that 
I think they say the 20 hour work week is what we should be striving towards and that part of this is about overwork. And it is one of the great ironies of our world that the machines that are meant to be stealing our jobs are still making us work harder and harder all the time. But that, again, is a question that could be seen to connect all of us. We all feel these pressures, but also to divide us because there's the stress of zero hours work culture. And there is the stress of highly paid professional work culture. And there's a question, you know, is there a politics that could connect the two to get strung out lawyers to recognise that they are experiencing some of the same symptoms that strung out supermarket workers are experiencing? Or is that gap too big? And in the end, is it going to have to be a politics that sets one against the other? So even if we strive towards the 20, I think we'd all benefit from the 20 hour work week. I think I would, I think we all would. But is there a way that that could become a unifying political argument? Or is there always going to be that gulf? I think there's a gulf, but I think it's for another reason. I'm not sure that everybody would actually benefit, or certainly they wouldn't think that they would benefit. I think that people do have very different attitudes towards work. And actually, if you take work away from many people, that is the reason why they end up having mental health problems. And one of the reasons why, you know, I have some more than just sort of, if you like, epistemological scepticism about the machines taking over and, and doing the work. It seems to me to be somewhat a nightmarish world in which none of us do any work. All that terrifying leisure. <laughs> it's just that as human beings that we have, over the years, for whatever reason, come to attach quite a lot of our sense of self-worth in what we do in the workspace. Now, that might, might in some sense be unhealthy, but that, that that's is, who we are. That's who we are. And then I think there's the question of if we work less collectively is is what the consequences are for our material living standards now many of us wouldn't have too much of a problem with having lower material living standards but lots of people do there's not actually political agreement about this at all it will be a contested political space because people might think quite rightly in my view that materialist culture is is bad for us all but that doesn't mean that lots of people don't want to live in a materialist culture can we finish with something I touched on at the beginning, and we can't do this in any depth, but I think it's interesting in this context, which is not just the politics of mental health, but the mental health of politics and politicians, because it's also something I think people are conscious of. This is a really difficult job to be a politician, and it does seem to put huge stress on certain kinds of individuals. And then there is a another old story, which is so does it also favour certain kinds of individuals who can deal with that level of stress? Is there some weird selection process going on in this representative democracy of ours where they're meant to represent us, but actually the people who end up doing these jobs are quite unlike most people because of their ability to deal with these kinds of strains? And again, in the history of political thought, this is an argument that goes around a lot. There's a famous argument from Max Weber saying that political leadership in particular is a kind of madness or it's at least it's about your ability to deal with things that would send most people mad above all the strain of doing bad in order to do good so this might be a perennial feature of politics that the sorts of strains it puts on individuals select for the kind of individuals who may not have a lot of in common with most of us and then there's the more recent version of it which is political life has become intolerable in the age of twitter in the age of facebook in the age of 24-hour news to be Home Secretary is often the focus of this. There's a brilliant novel by Richard T. Kelly called The Knives, also a very prescient novel, which is about what it's like to be a Conservative Home Secretary dealing with the range of issues and also having your own mental health problems, that is, the stress that you're under in your personal life. What would it be like to be responsible for terrorism, for prisons, um, for immigration, and to lead a human life? Again, do you have any sense of whether we should be thinking of this as the old story or something 
that's got a new twist to it. It's actually harder to be a politician now. I think it is, but I find my attention isn't drawn so much to thinking about the elite politicians in the leading cabinet jobs. I think it's always going to be difficult to generalise about them because the numbers are so small and they are such unusual people. But if we think about the professional political class as a whole, that there's such a drive now to have more politicians who are obviously engaged in family life, whether that's more women and more mothers who are becoming politicians and more male politicians who you know make a big thing of how much time they spend on their family lives. And as in the Labour Party, there's a push now to have fewer politicians coming on the old SPAD track who are people who've been to elite universities who have relatively few social connections and to have more people who are rooted in communities and in local and industrial struggles again. All parties are exploring mechanisms for trying to recruit more non-white politicians and now there are conversations about when the first um, trans men or trans women will be selected as candidates for winnable seats and so on. And this effort that the parties are making to have a parliamentary cadre that looks more like the country as a whole is also going to be a story about how the mental stresses and strains of the population as a whole are going through are going also to be reflected in the political class. And we're seeing a bit of that, I think, that just as mental health problems are more visible now in our society than they were 20 or 30 years ago, we're seeing that in and around the world of people at at Westminster, and not a politician but a political journalist, Isabel Hardman of The Spectator, has written very movingly about her own mental health difficulties and the need from time to time to step back and, and take a break from her work. And we're going to see a lot more of this kind of thing, of politicians who are wrestling with their demons much more publicly than they've done in the past, and that's going to start off a whole load of conversations about the mental health of politicians and the question of, is it good for them? Is it good for politics? And these are going to be incredibly difficult conversations to have. I think that the terms of the people who get to the top in terms of the leadership positions and high positions in, in the cabinet in this and uh, other countries, I think one of the things that's, that's striking is, is that the psychological types, if we can use that language, of the people who get to the top has diminished and was, well, in the, sense, the range, the of, range them. of them. If you take British politics, Theresa May really looks like an outlier. I know I said this before about how introverted she is. Now, I think that the the introverted person who could be quite successful in politics was a feature of British politics for a long time. At some point, I would say sometime in the 90s, around the emergence of Blair and the kind of style that he developed, it became much more difficult for the introverts to rise to the top. In some sense, Brown was a tortured version of it. But if you take... Cameron, he very much was a successor to Blair in that respect. Now, you can look at what then happened to Theresa May in the first six months of her premiership, where people say, oh, it's great to have somebody who's not outward-facing all the time, is just getting on and doing the job. But as soon as she actually had to be on the stage of politics during the election campaign, it all went horribly wrong for her. And you could see that she was just under enormous personal torment in playing out the role that she had to play out. Now, in some sense, she's recovered from that, but you only have to, I think, put her back into a setting where she's got to be the outward performer again and all the same problem would come back. Now, if you say, go back to what Weber said and say, OK, you want politicians in the end who are capable of hot passion and cool judgment. I mean, Weber himself, as we know, recognised that there were very few people who could do that. But if if you make it harder for the kind of types who could 
previously maybe get into that space to be in politics because it requires them to do something that they can't do, then I think that something has changed. Because Theresa May is also interesting, I think, because to go back to the novel that I mentioned, which is about what it would be like to be Home Secretary, the thing that's so odd about her is that she thrived in that context. I mean, she was, whether you think she was a good Home Secretary or bad Home Secretary, she lasted. She managed that department. And she recognised what the challenges were and she dealt with them. We're seeing something similar with her as Prime Minister. Like, she got through the crisis. She's extraordinarily dogged. She's extraordinarily tenacious. And I think people really divide on whether that means that she's kind of admirable or strange. I mean, to survive six years as Home Secretary, is that a reflection of someone who is a person we should look up to as having a range of skills that we value? Or is that does that make her actually pretty, not just unlike us, but quite peculiar? I think in the end that what you probably require in politics is a range of personalities and that she looks strange because there isn't really anybody else like her. If you put her back you know, into the 1960s or into the 1970s, I don't think that she would stand out in the same way in which she does. At the same time, you wouldn't want, I think, a politics that was full of Theresa Mays. And we see something of that dilemma in people's response to Amber Rudd, who who didn't survive the rigours of the Home Office, and is, a, I think, a pretty sympathetic person in lots of ways. And people were aware that during the election, she had a really difficult time. Her father died, she stood in for Theresa May. I think, leaving politics aside, there's a relative groundswell of human sympathy for her, but not to be able to cope with being Home Secretary in a politician, is that a good sign or a bad sign? <laughs> should we should we think, mm-hmm. oh, well, that shows she's definitely human because no one can cope with that job? Or should we say, well, she's failed? I think she ended up with an impossible set of cards to play, that Theresa May's tenure as Home Secretary was dominated by her trying to deliver on the reckless and the extraordinarily damaging promise David Cameron made to set a number on immigration targets. All politicians had declined to take that step because they saw the consequences. Cameron either didn't see them or disregarded them. May dutifully executed Cameron's agenda. But when you have people engaged in an impossible task, the problems will mount up and mount up. And in this case, they overwhelmed her successor. I don't think anyone could have dealt with that. I don't think it's about Amber Rudd's psychology. I think she found herself in an impossible position, an impossible position largely created by Theresa May and before her, David Cameron. We'll tweet the link to the interview we did with James Meek about the NHS. Also to the interview we did with Jess Phillips, the Labour MP, who talks really interestingly about some of these questions too. Next week, we're going to get back to talking about international politics, where there are some huge issues to discuss. The tearing up of the Iran deal, the crisis now that's provoked in European transatlantic politics, what's going on in Israel, the on-again, off-again summit between Trump and Kim. It's almost too much. It's overwhelming. But we'll get to it next week. And after that, we're going to talk about Italy too, because there's some really interesting developments in Italian politics. Do join us again next week. My name is David Runciman, and we've been Talking Politics. Okay, hold so on, I, we're done. I think that's it. Yeah. Ah, I've mentioned it. Is it working? It's fine. Let's Should do, we do a sound let's check? Let's do breakfast. Have we got three in, yeah. Got three, turn on three key Waffle Wednesday, Waffle Wednesday, Waffle Wednesday. Yay. Back to hummus, back to hummus. So we'd run out of almonds, so it was... <laughs> this sounds very... It was cashew nut waffles. <laughs>
and I had my breakfast in the cafe downstairs, but it was a two slice of bacon morning. I'm worried about your carcinogen intake. <laughs> no, 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 don't worry about that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thank goodness. Mental, it's good because we've now become stressed. We have. So we're in the right mental space to do this podcast. We are. It's all absolutely normal. Hello, my name's David Rathbun. <laughs> this is Talking Politics. 